the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Well, it's great to see you guys today. If you're joining us uh, live, so glad to see you. If you're joining us online, thank you so much for uh, choosing to spend part of your morning with Life Church today. And uh, today we're continuing in our series through the really strange book, the book of Judges. So if you have your Bibles, go over to Judges chapter 4. And we're going to look at a story today. It's really a story about three people, uh, a lady named Deborah and a a man named Barak and another lady named J.L. And what I want to talk to you about today um, is uh, I want to talk to you about what are some marks of people who live their lives as history makers? And when I say history maker, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that your name's going to be in a history book or that you're going to be famous. But what I want to talk to you about are, are some marks of, of someone who lives a life that leaves a legacy, a life that, that even after you're no longer walking this planet, that, that the impact that you're making continues. And, and far too much, I think the saddest thing in the world is someone who, who in their whole life never meets Jesus. But I think the second saddest thing in the world and someone that does know Jesus but just lives a life that's safe and comfortable and focused on themselves. And then, and then really once they die, they just live and they die and then they are soon forgotten and, and really nothing about their life continues to echo on as a legacy. So I wanna to talk to you a little bit today about living your life as a history maker. And so we're gonna begin in Judges chapter four and verse one. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Hagoyim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, remember that, and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. So we see this, this pattern continues, where life's going pretty good for the, the people of Israel, and then they begin to forget God and live for themselves and worship false gods, really living like the people around them that don't know the one true God. And then because sin never goes well in the long haul, life gets difficult, God allows them to fall into the hands of their enemies, After some period of time, they recognize we were better off worshiping the one true God. They cry out to God, and he raises someone up to deliver them, one of these judges. And so we're going to see the judge today. His name is Deborah. Now, Deborah, a prophet or prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Now, I shared with you before that when you read the words judge, don't think in terms of primarily as someone who, do, who deals with legal matters, legal disputes, but really think more like a, a, a tribal military leader or deliverer. Deborah is unique in that she actually is functioning as kind of a, a mediator of disputes with the uh, people of Israel. It says, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, now so she's speaking as, as if God's speaking to Barak, says, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I, then he, God's still speaking, I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariot and his troops to the Kishon River and give him and to your hands. And so here's a, a principle. 
history makers look to God more than just the natural circumstances or physical resources. There's two things you gotta know about the Canaanites. The first one is this, they were very, very strong. So we know this because it says that they have 900 chariots of iron. And so we're in this moment of history where the Bronze Age is coming to, a, a, to its end, it's near the end, and the Iron Age is really just beginning. And so the Canaanites were, were one of just a very few nations that had access to iron weapons. In this case, they had iron chariots, where, where the, the, the Israelites didn't have that technology. And so in the natural, the, the Canaanites were at this incredible advantage over the people of Israel. It'd be as if a bunch of guys on horses with six shooters were going against the most modern tanks available. They would just have no shot in the natural. And so in the natural, it was hopeless. And, and so what happens is, is history makers, they, they look more to God than they do what they actually have in their hand, their natural resources, their physical resources. And it would have been e easy for Deborah to look at these very, very strong people and think, we've got no shot. And it would have been easy to think when, that, 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 they had, that it was impossible to come against them. But here's the truth. When evil looks unstoppable, it actually isn't. And, and so they were incredibly strong. In the natural, it was hopeless. And, and, but, but what we see is this. We see in, in, verse, in, uh, in verse seven of chapter four, um, God says, I'll lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River or to the valley by the Kishon River. Now, there's no way in the world that Sisera would have led his army down into the valley of the Kishon River, except for the, if it was not in the dry season. So it's the, it's the dry season. God says, hey, they're going to lead this army down into the middle of this river. And then the way this story is written is unique. And so we see chapter four is sort of written as like a narrative. It's telling us the story, like we're used to reading stories. But then chapter five is told in the form of like a poem or a song. So chapter five, Deborah is like singing this song to the Lord, but also recapping what happened in this poetic form. And so here's what, what we see in Judges five, verse four. Talking about how the victory came, it says, when you, Lord, went out from Sire, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, and the clouds poured down water. So what we see is this, God does this miracle. It's in the middle of the dry season, and out of nowhere, God sends this giant storm. And now last week, we saw the fact that sometimes God takes our weaknesses and turns them into a strength. Here, we're seeing the opposite, where the, 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 the Canaanite nation has this epic advantage, these iron chariots, but God does this miracle where those iron chariots went from being a great asset to being this giant liability. So there are these super heavy iron chariots down in this river valley, and then this epic flood comes and all of those chariots just sink. So God does this miracle. Now had Deborah been focused on the, the, the natural resources, what was going on in the physical, so there's no way that she would have ever thought they had a chance. But what Deborah did is she recognized that God was bigger than her natural resources. God was bigger than what was going on in the physical. And so we see this thing. So the Canaanites were incredibly strong, but God takes their strength and turns it into weakness. And they were also incredibly evil. We know that for a few reasons. It says that 
in the introduction in chapter four, it says that they had these chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And so, but we also see that in chapter five, as Deborah's like telling this song, this poem, kind of recapping the story, at the end of the story, after they've been defeated, we'll see the details of their defeat along the way, Deborah, like as a part of this song, kind of pretends as if, sort of in a mocking way, that she He's kind of speaking through the lens of, of Sisera, the commander's mother, waiting for him to come back from battle. We see here, verse 28. He says, why is she, the, the, the mother, Deborah, kind of in the voice of the mother, Deborah, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why hadn't he come back yet? Where is the clatter of, of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answered her. Indeed, and, indeed she keeps saying to herself, are they not finding and dividing the spoil? So they're waiting for their son, who's actually dead, to come back. And they're saying, why well, take us long to come back? And then they say, oh, he must be still stealing their things. And, and, and then he says, a woman or two for each man. Really, a better translation would be a slave girl. So the idea is what these people would do. It's terrible. Is they would conquer a land and take the things and then carry off the women to be essentially sex slaves. See, we see just a little snapshot of the incredible evil that was going on in Canaan. A, a, an incredibly clear picture of, of the soul of a nation, the soul of a people, is how they treat the most vulnerable. And so what we see, what we know about these Canaanites is a part of their worship of these false gods is they, they practiced infant sacrifice. We, we know here that, that they would, would, would raid a land, steal the things, take these women as, as essentially sex slaves. And, and it's a clear mark of what's going on at the soul of a people is how do they treat the most vulnerable? And, and so a few things about that. See, this, this the incredible evil of the Canaanites marked by how they abused the vulnerable and, and sacrificing children, treating women terribly. It speaks to why it was so terrible when God's people, who were supposed to be different, began worshiping these false gods and falling into the practices of the people around them, acting like everybody else. And, and then what we see here, and as, as weird as this book is, you read the book of Judges and there's just all this violence and it's like, it just feels so wrong to us. And I want to give you just a couple of quick thoughts about that. See, as weird as this book is, and even as most of the, uh, the heroes, even as we're going to see in the coming weeks, they, they're, they're very flawed. Deborah's one of the least flawed of these heroes. And as strange as the violence seems weird to us, it was very much the way the world was then. But we do see this consistent theme or this consistent arc through the book of Judges that, that God takes sin seriously. So God takes the sin of his people seriously, the sin of, of these incredibly wicked people, the Canaanites, and that God ultimately will overcome evil. And, and that uh, we see this idea that God uses imperfect people to uh, accomplish his purposes but around these themes are so much violence that it seems so wrong. And part of the reason that these ways of behaving seem so foreign to us is because of the impact of Christianity on the world. See, the whole concept of human rights, you ever hear people talk about human rights? Well, we've got to stand up for the human rights of this group or that group. The whole concept of human rights comes from Christianity. It certainly doesn't come from Darwinian, Dar, Darwinian naturalistic evolution, materialism. Because the, the, the message of, of Darwinian naturalism is all about the survival of the fittest. And so there's nothing more appropriate, if that's your worldview, than for the strong to take advantage of the weak. 
And so it's really Christianity that, that really introduced the idea of human rights, which is why, why when we read these stories of all this violence, it seems so wrong to us. And so, see, human rights comes from Christianity that, that says that the child is made in the image of God, so we will not sacrifice them. The slave is made in the image of God, so we will not enslave them. Women are made in the image of God and are not to be abused or exploited and exist for more than the pleasure of a man. Christianity that says, love your enemies so we don't kill our enemies. See, even the Declaration of Independence recognizes that, that our rights actually come from the Christian God. See, here's the thing. The government may at times serve to protect your rights, but your rights do not come from the government. It says, the Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths, truths to be self-evident. This is just obvious as we look through the, through the world with any sort of Christian worldview that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so when we read these stories and we just see this kind of over-the-top crazy violence, what we're seeing is we're seeing the, the, the way the world always worked but before, before the New Testament was written, before Jesus came and introduced us to a different way, and as people began to, to, to look at life through the lens of Christianity, we begin to be introduced to these human rights and this whole other way of living. But here, so here's the principle. History makers look to God more than just the natural circumstances. The Canaanites, incredibly strong, incredibly evil, and it would have been very easy for Deborah to keep her eyes on those physical, natural circumstances, but she knew that God was bigger than all of that. Is there an area of your life that you need to turn your eyes away from the natural resources and instead turn your eyes towards God, who's got all the resources you see and then all the resources that you don't See, let's, let's go to our second point. History makers live with conviction and courage when others are living scared. See, we see here, verse eight. So Deborah says to Barak, she says, hey, God, I, I command you, God's commanding you to lead this army and God's gonna give you the victory. And Barak says to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I'll go with you, said Deborah. I had a moment with Michael, my little three-year-old yesterday. We're upstairs, and I said, hey, Michael, I've got to do this thing. I'll be downstairs just in a couple of minutes. Can you go downstairs to mommy? And, and he says, no, I, I want you to go with me. And I said, well, i got to do this thing, and then I'll be down in a couple of minutes. And then and I said, can you just go down to mommy? And, and, and he says, I, I want you to go with me. And I finally said, are you, Michael, are you scared? And he says, yes. And because he's three, it was okay. But Barack is the leader of the military of Israel. <laughs> and he says to this lady, he says, I'll go, but only if you go with me. And then Deborah says, all right, I'll go. See, what we see here is this, that history makers live with conviction and courage and that there's moments in life where it looks like fear is the correct response, but for the Christian, it never is. And so the most repeated command in the Bible is not to, to be afraid. And I think that maybe the reason for that is God knows that, that, that most of the mistakes we make in life are because we're scared to do the right thing. Joshua 1.9, which was just one generation before, this is God's word to Joshua, this generation before, what's going on here? He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, he tells us, for God's not given us a spirit of fear. God's not given us a spirit of timidity, but of one of power, love, and a sound mind. And so what we see here in Deborah is there's this courage to confront evil and oppression and injustice. There's this courage to be different from the culture. I like how John Piper describes Christian courage. He says this, Christian courage is the willingness to say and do the right thing regardless of the earthly cost because God promises to help you and save you on account of Christ. Christian courage is, courage is the willingness to say and do the right thing regardless of the cost. And I think too often, many times as Christians, where we find ourselves more like Barack than we do Deborah, we find ourselves as crippled with fear. Uh, you know, 2020, super weird year. And I, I think over the next five, 10, 20, and 50 years, there's gonna be a whole lot of psychological and sociological study on, on, on what happened in 2020. And, but I, I wonder if the future will record 2020 as the year of fear. Not that there weren't real threats, not that there weren't things to be taken seriously and to have wisdom, and, and, and not that we didn't see things in terms of disease, in terms of, of, of cultural shakeup, but many times, instead of responding with appropriate concern or wisdom, many times we find ourselves responding with fear. And here's the thing about fear, and especially in men. See, Michael, three years old, I said, Michael, are you scared? And he said, yes. But there's good odds in 15, 20, 25 years if someone asks Michael if he's scared, he's gonna say, I'm not scared, I'm, I'm mad. Because a lot of times what our fear manifests is anger. Or our fear manifests as this need to control. And, and, and many times as Christians, we, we, we live with far more fear than we ever, ever should. Harriet Tubman was born into slavery on a Maryland plantation in 1822. As she grew up, she was made to work driving oxen, trapping muskrats in the woods, and as a nursemaid. Harriet's owners frequently whipped her, and she endured the pain of seeing three of her sisters sold, never to be seen again. But when her owner tried to sell one of her brothers, Harriet's mother openly rebelled. The would-be buyer gave up after Harriet's mother told him, the first man that comes into my house, I will split his head open. She could have been in the book of Judges. Her mother's actions likely implanted in Harriet the idea that resistance to evil was right and could sometimes be successful. As a child, Harriet herself would run away for days at a time but there were rays of joy in her life as well. Harriet's mother told her stories from the Bible, which developed in her a deep and abiding faith in God. When Harriet was about 26 years old, she learned that she might be sold away from her family. The time had come to try to escape. She made her way some 90 miles along the Underground Railroad. She traveled at night to avoid slave catchers, following the North Star until she reached Pennsylvania and freedom. Once there, she dared to make a dangerous decision she risked her own freedom in order to give others theirs. For eight years, she led scores of slaves north to freedom. During these trips, she relied upon God to guide and protect her. She never once lost a runaway slave. As Harriet herself later put it, I never ran my train off the track and I never lost a passenger. She gave all the credit to God explaining, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. I always told him, I trust you. I don't know where, where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me, and he always did. 
Her faith deeply impressed others. Abolitionist Thomas Garrett said, I never met with any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken directly to her soul. See, history makers, people whose, whose lives make a difference even once they're no longer on the earth, they live with conviction and courage, even when everyone else is scared. When, see, when fear looks like it's the right response, it never is. History makers respond with courage. One of the most courageous things and one of the first courageous things God calls us to do as, as a new follower of Jesus is to get baptized. Maybe you have made the choice to follow Jesus trusted in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, taking the punishment you deserve upon himself, that he rose from the dead, conquering life's greatest enemies of sin and death and hell. Maybe you've made the choice to follow Jesus, really giving him the steering wheel of your life, no longer living for yourself, but following Jesus. The Bible tells us that the next thing we do is we get baptized. Really, it's our way of going public. And, and a lot of times it's a real a matter of courage, matter of saying, I, don't, I, I want everybody to know I'm going to follow Jesus the rest of my life. And on June the 6th, you're going to have a chance to do that in, in either, either one of our services. In fact, we have a class right after this service today for parents with their children. Maybe you've got an 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old who's interested in getting baptized. We have a class right after this service, lunch provided for parents and their children. But getting baptized is an act of courage. Here's the third truth. History makers bring out the best in others. They challenge them to fulfill their destiny. See, a lot of times what we think is, we, if I'm gonna do something significant, I have to do it all alone. And a number of the judges that we see in the book of Judges really are just kind of solo performers. But the thing about Deborah is, is it's Deborah and his two other people, a lady named J.L. and this guy, Barack. And what we see with, with Deborah and Barack is Deborah really is in the business of bringing out the best in him. See what we, what we see here in chapter eight, chapter four, verse eight, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And so what Deborah says is she says, certainly I will go with you. See, sometimes what happens is, is some people, what, what we see first with Deborah with Barak is she lets Barak know God has something for you. God has a purpose for you. God has a mission for you. He's inviting you into it. He's going to bring the victory and there's absolute power. I think this is an especially powerful thing that, that spouses can do for one another and that parents can do in their children's lives is to look at them and say, I believe that God has plans for you and that he has great things in store for you. One of the greatest gifts my parents gave me as a, as a, as a little boy is they just look at me and say, God's got a purpose for you and it's bigger than you understand. And, and so what, what Deborah does is, is she says to Barack, she says, God's, God's going to use you. You're going you're gonna to lead us into this victory. And so God's got a plan. He's going to bring the victory. And then Barack says, hey, well, will you come with me? And sometimes that's part of what it is to, to bring out the best in someone is to say, hey, as you're doing this, I'm going to be right there with you. I'm even going to help you. And then Deborah says this, a little shamey, but because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, Barak likely thought that Deborah was being a glory hound. Oh, it's, I'm going to be the one that gets the praise out of this, but okay, I'll come. Little wussy man, you know, it's a little shamey. But what, what, she's, what she's doing is she's challenging him to think about this in the long haul. Think about this through the lens of his legacy. and something that we can do for one another, especially if someone's on the verge of making a decision that you really believe they're gonna regret later. And say, hey, I know that right now 
this is the easy thing to do and this is the thing that looks like it's the fun thing to do. But I want you to take a minute and think about what are you gonna think about this choice a year from now? What are you gonna think about this choice 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now at your funeral? How are your kids and your grandkids going to think about this choice that you're making? And so, so Deborah says, sure, I'll come with you, but I want you to know that this choice you're making is going to affect your legacy. And so what we see is Deborah invites him into God's activity, promises that God's gonna use him in a big way, says, I'm gonna help you, I'm gonna come alongside you, but I want you to think long-term about this. How, how are you going to think about this in the future? How will others think about this in the future? And so Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, there, Barak summoned Zebulon and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah went with them. Now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, and then we kind of see how, how all this goes down. They end up in this big battle in this, in this valley, and then we learn later, this rain comes, the chariots get stuck, and the next thing we see is the last part of verse 15. Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So that heavy iron chariot, which was the picture of Sisera's strength, became this weakness. It was stuck in the mud. He runs away. And then the story gets even weirder. So he runs away. He finds this, this property owned by an ally of his people. He sees this tent. There's this lady there. He thinks she must be harmless. Her name was JL. She acts like she's on his team. Kind of an original like CIA kind of spy stuff going on. And then she says, hey, yeah. He says, can I hide out in your tent? And will you watch out for me? And he, she says, sure. And then he says, I'm real super tired. I'm gonna take a little nap. And But first, can I have something, some water? And she said, I'll do even better. You're asking for water. I'm gonna give you some some." goat's milk, here's some milk. And, and then she covers him in a blanket and then he falls asleep. And then she takes a tent peg, which in that culture would have been seen as, as almost like a woman's kitchen tool. It's, it's, imagine her like with a rolling pin or something. <laughs> See, what we, the beautiful thing about this story is these, these people that were known for oppressing women, it's two women that take them out. She comes up with that tent peg while he's sleeping a lot, of, a lot of guys this afternoon that are thinking about taking a little nap or now thinking it twice. Like, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll stay awake. And then she drives that tent peg through his temple. And, and so when Deborah said to Barak, he, he says, I'll come with you, but you're not gonna get the glory for this. A woman's gonna get the glory. Barak thought it was Deborah talking about her own self, but it's this lady, JL. And so we, we see this thing. History makers bring out the best in others, challenging them to fulfill their destiny. Deborah knew that this wasn't all about just her to do by herself. It was gonna be her plus Barack, who she brings out the best in, and this lady named JL. And, and so it's this beautiful picture. Maybe there's someone in your life that, 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 not that you're there to be a nag, not that you're there to control them, but maybe there's someone in your life, or maybe a few people, that God's calling you to, to draw out God's very best in them. To spur them on towards love and good deeds. To say, hey, I believe God's got a plan for you. And I believe God's got great things in store for you. And I'm here to, I'm gonna be right here with you in it. And I'm here to help you with it. And, and maybe, maybe you have a friend that's thinking about doing something that right now seems easy, right now seems right, right now seems convenient. And you simply just need to ask the question. Hey, I'm not here to tell you what to do. But I want you to think about yourself a year from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now at your funeral. How is this move going to affect your legacy, your kids, your grandkids? Think about the long-term move. History makers bring out the best in others. 
We don't have to do this all alone. Here's the last point and we're done. History makers view being a part of God's crazy adventure to be a privilege. Look here, so in Judges chapter five, it's this kind of poetic song. Deborah's worshiping God, but sort of recapping the story in this little poem. We see here, Judges chapter five, verse 13. It says, the remnants of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people. So now she's going through, talking region by region, tribe by tribe. She's gonna list the people that came and were a part of the fight. And then she's gonna list the people who missed out. Some people came from Ephraim. And then he says, um, Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Makir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak. Sent under his command into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. See, the people in Reuben were just kind of going back and forth. Should we help? Should we not help? Should we help? Should we not help? He says, why, why did you stay among the sheep pens? To hear the whistling for the flocks? Kind of making fun of them. Like, why did you, you didn't want to come fight. You had to, like, hear the, the flocks and just hear the whistles. What were you doing? And the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Again, it says, hey, they, they couldn't figure out what they wanted to do. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? So those folks, they, they stayed over on that side where it was safe. And the other people, they're like, hey, I, I got to watch my boat. I just got this new boat and I got to watch it. We just waxed it. <laughs> on the pontoon. Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his, in his coves. He was hiding out. People of Zebulon risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terrace fields. Kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took, and then now she's making fun of the losers. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no plunder of silver. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then hundreds, then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping by his mighty steeds. Curse, Miraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. And then this is one of the strangest verses that we don't want any ladies to fully take to heart. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. Hey, that lady that drove that stake through that guy's temple, he uses the same description that we later see of the Virgin Mary, the most blessed. <laughs> I thought it was funny and weird, but whatever. And so, uh, most blessed among women. Um, but here's what we see. History makers view being a part of God's crazy adventure to be a privilege. See, when I think serving God is a burden, I'm blind to the great blessing. Well, she goes in that little song as she lists the people that, that, that stepped out and were a part of the fight and made a difference. And then she lists the people who missed out. People who said, hey, I'm not gonna go. And, and, and I, I think it's this picture that anything you, that you believe God wants you to do, is, no matter how difficult, is more of a blessing than it is a burden. It's more of an opportunity than it is an obligation. It's more of a privilege than it is a pain. And, and so he, he says, hey, there, there, there were people that stepped out and, and, and were a part of this and they're blessed. And there were people who, who missed out because of all the reasons that they said, hey, we're not gonna do it. And, and he says, man, they, they missed out on the blessing. And so anything you believe that you're supposed to do, that even no matter how hard it might be, it's, it's a privilege. And so for you, that might look like loving your spouse well. You say, man, it's so, so hard. It feels like a burden. The reality is it's a blessing. 
Loving your kids well and raising up to, to love and follow Jesus. I know it can be have hard, hard moments, but it's a blessing. It's a, it's a privilege. L- living generously, giving generously of your money. You're like, oh, it's a beat down. I've got to give. It's, Bible says that, that, that it's a joy to give. It's a privilege to get to be a part of God's work in the world. And some, of, some of you have, have kind of, through COVID, and I get it, like, hey, I'm just going to take a, some time off of serving and using my gifts to make a difference in ministry. And now we're kind of coming out of COVID, and you're like, oh, is now the time? Is now not the time? Is now the time? Now it's not the time. It's like that tribe that, that, that was there, and they said they just kept thinking about it. Should we go and fight? Should we stay here? Should we go and fight? Should we stay here? And here's the thing. If you ask your quilt self, should I do it now? Should I should I not do it? Should I do it? Should I not do it? If you do it long enough, it answers the question for itself. It just, you, just, you just don't do it. There was that tribe. Said, oh, they, just, they thought about it really hard, but they just never ever came. And, and some of you uh, uh, kind of go through life like that. Say, say, man, is now when I'm going to begin to make a difference with my life and engage God's mission in the world or, or later or never, now or later or never. And ultimately, if you, if you know, at some point later becomes never. And so she just goes through, she's singing these songs and she's like, hey, they were all in and they were blessed. And they had, they, they had, they had, they wanted to stay and watch the sheep and make sure their boat didn't get dirty. And they were hiding out in caves and that was their legacy. Share your faith with neighbor. It's not a, it's your neighbor. It's not a pain, it's a privilege. See, as we see Deborah invite Barak into this mission and we see, see the tribes invited into this mission, we can't help but consider the fact that Jesus invites us into his mission into the world and that it's a blessing, not a burden. It's a privilege, not a pain. It's an opportunity, not an obligation. See, we, sometimes we miss out for a number of reasons. But one is we, we don't even think of life like this. So many people, it's so easy to fall in this trap where we don't even think about our lives. Like, am I living a life that's gonna even matter once I'm gone? And instead, we just live lives of survival and lives of coasting. We're like, if I can just get through this day and then the next day and then the next day and then it'll be Friday and then I can watch some football or some basketball. Nothing wrong with watching basketball. I watched my Mavericks beat the Clippers yesterday, but yeah, it happened. And so... Uh, but it's like just a life of coasting and survival and never even thinking about the, the impact you're making. Some of us just need to do something. Some of us have just sat around too long on our blessed assurance. <laughs> Mother Teresa said it this way. Even if you're on the right track, you'll get run over if you just sit there. Some of us just think it'll be too costly or too difficult and we used to say, I'm scared to do it. Maya Angelou said this. She said, I found that I knew not only there was, that there was God, but that I was a child of God. When I understood that, when I comprehended that, more than that, when I internalized that, ingested that, I became courageous. I dared to do anything that was a good thing. I dared to do things as distant from what seemed to be in my future. She said, if God loves me, if God made everything from leaves to seals and oak trees, then what is it I can't do? She also said this. She said, and after years 
And you develop courage by doing it small, courageous things. In the same way that one wouldn't set out to pick up a 100 100 pound bag of rice, if that was one's aim, the person would be advised to pick up a five pound bag and then a 10 pound bag and then a 20 pound and so forth until one bundles up enough muscle to actually pick up 100 pounds. In the same way with courage, you develop courage by doing courageous things. Small things, but things that cost you some exertion, mental and I suppose spiritual. Sometimes the reason that we don't get engaged in the mission and join in, recognizing that to be a part of God's work in the world is a blessing and a privilege and an opportunity. And we do the same thing these tribes did. They said, well, someone else will do it. They said, hey, well, we don't need, they, they've got this. Those other tribes have got this. We'll let them do it. And what they didn't understand is that they were missing out on being a part of something special. They were missing out on the blessing. Or, or, or we just think it doesn't matter. See, history makers view being a part of God's crazy adventure to be a blessing. When I, when I think it's a burden, when I focus on the burden, I'm blind to the blessing, the privilege, and the opportunity. And my question for you is, are you fully engaged in God's mission? If somebody was writing a, a little song, a little poem, and, and they were saying, hey, these people were all in and investing their lives and making a difference, and these people were hiding, scared, and coasting, and letting other people do it, which, which group would you be in Deborah's song? If it was today, it'd probably be a rap. You see, we're invited into the gospel story. And you see, just like in the themes of these stories, God takes sin seriously, and God will overcome evil, and God uses imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. This is the, really a part of the gospel, that God takes sin so seriously that, that he became the solution for us, and Christ dying on the cross for us. And in his death, he, he took all of the evil of the world upon himself, And in his resurrection, he guaranteed his coming final victory over all that is evil and wrong and broken in the world. And he has invited us, deeply flawed, imperfect people, into his mission. And he gives us the privilege, the blessing, the opportunity of being on his team, of seeing people made healthy and whole in him, and working towards a day when he will make everything right. Are you living your life in a way that's gonna matter when you're gone? Are you just falling into the suburban American trap of just safety and comfort and convenience and just living for ourselves? Lives where we will live and then die and soon be forgotten. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you that you have invited us to be a part of your team on your mission in the world. Deeply flawed, imperfect people joining with you a perfect God to be a part of your rescue story. So God, would you help us to live our lives with that in mind. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this, and we'll see you soon.